Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter. This episode, the second in our series The Use and Abuse of History, features the lecture entitled Critique or Conspiracy? What was the Frankfurt School? The lecture is Dr. Tim Black, Books and Essays Editor at Spiked. Given we're going to be talking about the Frankfurt School, uh, which I guess is really a way of referring uh, to, you know, a shorthand way of referring to several institutionally related uh, 20th century German intellectuals. Um, I think everyone kind of knows the names of the uh, of, of the characters. We're thinking Theodore Adorno, uh, Herbert Marcuse, Max Horkheimer uh, in the main. Um, and given we're talking about it because of the role attributed to it by the, uh, the uh, rather unhelpful narrative, as, as Jim just pointed out, of cultural Marxism, I do think it's worth um, just sketching out this narrative in a little bit more detail. Um, I say narrative, it is really just a conspiracy, and it's a, it's a conspiracy theory because it does ascribe a, a conspiratorial intention and, uh, I guess, world-shaping force uh, to the Frankfurt School uh, that it just didn't have. Um, in some ways, the idea of cultural Marxism is a clear example, I guess, of what Frank was talking about earlier, a kind of presentist uh, investment of a past moment, if you like, with a near magical power over us today, which we must continue to fight. Um, so this idea of cultural Marxism uh, uh, with the Frankfurt School at its centre uh, was given its first formulation by uh, a quasi-Trotskyist cult leader called Lyndon LaRouche in the mid 1970s. Uh, he argued that the Frankfurt School was uh, apparently a CIA-backed attempt to smear the left and turn people against it. Um, in the circle around LaRouche, this idea picked up steam, I think, during the 1980s, because the culture wars, particularly in relation to, to universities, were picking up pace too. Uh, so by the late 1980s, I think one of LaRouche's followers, uh, somebody called Michael Minichino, was arguing that Frankfurt School, or certainly the leading lights of the Frankfurt School, uh, that the leading lights of Frankfurt School were behind the implantation, as Jim actually mentioned, uh, implant implantation of relativism, political correctness, multiculturalism, and feminism in the in the academy and beyond. So the idea of the Frankfurt School as a plot was growing, I think, on the conspiratorial fringes of American discourse uh, during the late 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, and I think there are several components behind the elevation of the Frankfurt School in particular. Uh, the first is that it really was an institutional network. So it can look like a conspiracy. You know, Max Horkheimer, Adorno, Marcuse, other figures before that, people like Eric Fromm, Henry Grossman, they did all know each other uh, and they all worked together. Uh, the second, but by no means the most important, was the fact that almost all of its leading figures were Jewish. Uh, so that does appeal to the uh, anti-Semitic uh, anti strain on the far right. Uh, the third component was that its members did talk of Marx and were critical, as they put it, of state capitalism. Uh, so that plays on the Cold War tropes, you know, the Red Menace and so on. Uh, and finally, of course, because they landed in the States in the late 1930s to set up a temporary home at the University of Columbia, uh, they were a foreign non-American import, which means the uh, problems blamed on them could be dismissed as a foreign non-American import. With those elements in play, I think the best way to understand the growing traction of the cultural Marxism conspiracy theory, certainly on the mainstream right, is as follows. Uh, I think the more socially conservative right-wingers have felt culturally besieged in recent decades, you know, besieged by Hollywood, besieged by the liberal media, the more they felt even their language was under attack in the shape of political correctness, the more influential and potent they imagined the Frankfurt School and their so-called cultural Marxism to be. 
And I think above all, it provided them with an easy explanation for the problem they can't face, uh, which is the utter demoralization and legitimacy crisis of liberal capitalist societies, which was present at the, at the end of the long 19th century and explosive after the Second World War. And ironically enough, actually, this legitimacy crisis, indeed this cultural crisis of capitalist societies was probably given one of its most powerful and potent formulations by a later member of the Frankfurt School, namely Jürgen, uh, Jürgen Habermas in Legitimacy Crisis. Uh, so throughout the 1990s, you had kind of paleoconservative types like Michael Lind or uh, Patrick Buchanan um, blaming cultural Marxism, uh, blaming the Frankfurt School for everything from political correctness uh, to the decline of church attendance uh, to, uh, to the crisis of Western civilization. I think even President George Bush touched on, touched on it at one point in the early 1990s. And this culture war dynamic, particularly as it has intensified over the past decade, has continued to invest so-called cultural Marxism uh, with ever more incredible power. Um, you know, it's seen as an existential threat to the family. It's seen as a threat to liberalism and Western values. And it's seen as such by everyone from uh, the late media mogul Andrew Breitbart, Trump's one-time strategist Steve Bannon, psychotherapist, as, men, as Jim mentioned, Jordan Peterson, uh, and even um, uh, front bench members of the Tory party. And yet the punchline, of course, is that it's not true. Uh, there was no conspiracy. Uh, the Frankfurt School do not lie at the heart of the cultural crisis of the West. And in many ways, I think aspects of the school's leading thinkers uh, probably actually cut against today's identity and cultural politics, uh, the very politics for which they are held responsible. So what really was the Frankfurt School? Um, in factual terms, it was, and in fact still is, an independent academic body affiliated with the University of Frankfurt, it was funded by a capital endowment from the grain magnate Hermann Weil at the behest of his son, Felix, who wanted to build an academic home uh, for empirical Marxist research, as you saw it. And it was first established, I think as everyone probably all knows, in 1924 as the Institute of Social Research. Uh, in the inaugural address, uh, its, its director, uh, its first director, law professor Karl Grunberg, identified himself as a supporter a supporter of Marxism uh, as a purely scientific body of thought uh, rather than any kind of party political activity. Uh, the Institute was, you know, the, the idea was that the Institute was to conduct empirical research. It was to kind of, uh, it was have a multidisciplinary approach, bring together such disciplines as law, economics and philosophy, and it would publish its work in the Zeitschrift or rather the Journal for Social Research. Uh, so those are the bold facts. In many ways, though, I think it's more useful to see the Frankfurt School as a particular, as a product of a particular historical and social moment. I think you've got to remember, in fact, you know, it's quite easy to remember, of course, that German society in the aftermath of the First World War was in tumult. Uh, the, you know, the old certainties of bourgeois life uh, were in doubt before the war. Uh, they were in ruins after it. Uh, at the same time, the Russian Revolution and the, uh, and the large social democratic and communist parties, they were in conflict. They did kind of hold out. Uh, a sense, uh, a hope, if you like, there was a new form of society, uh, that a new form of society was about to be born. And the intellectuals, uh, and I'm thinking here of Felix Weil, Friedrich Pollock, who was another uh, prominent member of the Frankfurt School, Henry Grossman, Max Horkheimer, Grunberg himself, these intellectuals who would have formed the Institute of Social Research in 1924, they sort of, they were participants, they partook in that kind of febrile social and political atmosphere of the early 20s. Uh, and they also had a lot in common. Uh, by and large, they were sons of affluent bourgeois families. Their parents were Jewish, but they were mainly assimilated. They were mainly non-practicing uh, Jews. Uh, and as young men, they were immersed uh, less, I would say, in radical politics 
than in that kind of pre-war modernist culture suffused by the attitudes of Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky especially, i.e. that kind of modernist culture that stood so opposed uh, to the bourgeois world of their parents. So during and after the war, their refusal, or rather their rejection of their parents' world, their refusal of the jobs, if you like, that were promised them in law and industry, that only intensified. And they looked, I think, probably with good reason to the hopes of an insurgent left, to the Russian Revolution, of course, to the working class and, and to Marxism uh, for this new world to come. But, but, and it's a massive but, and I think this is the key to understanding the initial and possibly, uh, you know, the dominant trajectory of the Institute in the 20s and 30s, and perhaps, you know, there on after. Those hopes for a new society, those hopes they'd invest in, in Marxism, in the working class, in the Russian Revolution and so on, those hopes had in a sense already been dashed in 1919 with the defeat of the German Revolution, with the fall of the Munich Soviet, with the assassinations of Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. The revolutionary moment, if you like, that they looked to of 1917 was already ebbing at the very moment they were you know, forming this Institute for Social Research. I think there was a sense among those about to form it that the working class, having failed to carry through the revolution, were perhaps not the revolutionary agent, the so-called subject object of history that they should have been, or rather they imagined they should have been. I should say this doesn't apply to all those early Frankfurt schoolers. Um, Henrik Grossman, of course, as I'm sure some of you will know, uh, you know, a tough Polish Jew, not to mention a card-carrying communist, remained committed to revolutionary Marxism throughout the 20s and beyond, producing arguably, I would say, the only important piece of economic theory the Institute published in the shape of the law of accumulation and the breakdown of the capitalist system in, I think it was 1929. But nevertheless, for most of the members of the Institute, uh, I think the failure of the uh, working class, uh, well, the failure of the German Revolution in 1919, and immediately after, you know, the kind of this sense that the, the working class was not, you know, pushing through the society that they imagined was coming, I think that sense of defeat was pivotal. It drew them initially, I think, to the work of Karl Korsch and Georg Lukash, two, I guess you'd put it, dissident communists at this point, who at this point were trying, at the level of theory at least, uh, to inject a bit of subjectivity in the shape of Hegel, a bit of Lenin into the, the deterministic and rather sort of mechanistic theories that dominated uh, left-wing and socialist thought, certainly in Germany. And the defeat of the working class also framed the Institute's research during the 20s and 30s, which it, it was effectively asking why the German working class was not revolutionary. Indeed, one of its principal outputs, I think, during the 20s and early 30s, was a large multi-authored project studying authority in the family. Uh, and that concluded that the German working class uh, would be far less uh, resistant, first of all, to state authoritarianism and the right-wing seizure of power than, than uh, hitherto thought. So already their research was almost proving what they suspected, uh, that the working class was non-revolutionary. And this sense of the defeat of the working class, this sense which the Institute, I guess, as I've just said, was empirically proving to itself, starts to transform what passes for its Marxism. So it deprives, it, it deprives its Marxism of what it had for uh, Lukács and Karl Korsch, namely that revolutionary subjectivity of the class conscious proletariat. Um, and at this point, it's worth remembering that in 1927, Max Horkheimer, who at this point was not the director of the Institute, that was to happen three years later, he publishes a piece telling the insight of the impotence of the German working class. 
And I think Horkheimer's promotion uh, to the position of director in 1930 after Karl Grunberg had to step down because of a stroke, I think that merely consolidates this kind of post uh, class post-proletarian turn as much it also kind of consolidates that turn against the kind of class politics uh, as does the rise of those intellectually close uh, to Horkheimer in particular the student of Martin Heidegger, Herbert Marcuse and the then youngish uh, music critic Theodore Adorno who I would argue after the Second World War becomes the dominant intellectual figure in the Frankfurt School. Um, but at this point in the, in, the, in the 1920s and 30s, to the extent that the one-time grave diggers of capitalism feature in the work of the Institute's leading figures, they do so as victims, dupes, and worse, much worse as it happens. For the other key moment, of course, in determining uh, the Institute's trajectory was, of course, the rise of Nazism and, of course, its horrific, its, its horrific um, denouement. From 1933, the Nazis rise to power, of course, it also forced the Institute into exile and it won't actually return to Germany until the 1950s. Again, here it's worth remembering that this, this uh, the fact it was forced into exile refutes the idea, I think, that the Frankfurt School was a conspiracy, if you like, to march through the institutions of Western and American cultural life. Um, not only because the idea of this kind of uh, long march through the institutions, which uh, many ascribe to Antonio Gramsci, uh, and he, of course, was a figure the Frankfurt School had zero dealings with. There was no relationship with this, uh, this figure that supposedly came up with this uh, idea of marching to the institutions and taking over cultural life. Um, but also refutes the idea that the Frankfurt School was some sort of conspiracy, uh, that they were going to set out to somehow sort of infiltrate and take over, uh, I guess at this point, American cultural life, was the simple fact that they didn't actually want to leave Germany, let alone go to America. Indeed, Adorno at this point, he heads to Oxford for a few, uh, for a few years, where by all accounts, he made zero impact and uh, possibly zero friends. Uh, poor old uh, Walter Benjamin, of course, who... Though he's talked of as an influential, uh, important Frankfurt schooler, was largely a kind of peripheral figure, um, but he becomes very important in the 60s and 70s. But he, of course, ends up fleeing to Paris, uh, and he never actually makes it out of Europe because, of course, he kills himself, I think, in 1940. Anyway, it's, in the, it's during this period of enforced exile during the 30s and 40s, uh, during which they're facing the Nazi horror from afar, that the theoretical vision, I think, of the Institute's leading figures acquires those aspects with which we now associate it you know that kind of uh, that hopelessness um uh, that bleakness i said to jim the other day it's like you know they do have a kind of bleak vision and, and jim said oh do you think um and that's because i think they're wrestling with what has gone so catastrophically wrong uh, so they they start to increasingly develop a psychoanalytical understanding of society. Now it's mem you know to, to try to look at how its members can give themselves up to a to a strong uh, dictatorial strongman. Uh, they concentrate, I think, on the idea of the uh, of, sorry on the on young Marxes on the young Marxes idea of alienation, uh, and the later Marxes idea of commodity fetishism and Lukash's idea of reification. And all these are ways, I think, as that the ways for the Frankfurt School to attempt to understand why social agency uh, appears as its opposite, if you like, which is a thraldom to objects, which is a thraldom to the powers which are uh, out of people's control.
They also explore, I think, the change, this is during the 1930s and 40s, they explore the changing form of capitalism itself. And they come up with an idea of monopolistic state capitalism in place of the old free market. And they look at the ways in which this um, leads to the increasing, and I think this is a key idea. Uh, they look at the ways in which uh, state capitalism leads to the increasing administration of everyday life. They even look, and this is interesting, they even look at how the family had been supplanted as the primary source of socialization by state institutions. Indeed, Adorno in particular defends the family, he defends the family unit. You know, this is a guy that's meant to be a, uh, undercutting the family, uh, you know, that's going to drive, drive through the culture war in the family of the, of the 80s, 90s and 2000s. And he defends the family in the 1930s and 40s as a countervailing source of authority to that of the state. So, you know, how on earth does that fit into the cultural Marxist claim that the Frankfurt School wanted to abolish the family? In effect, then, the Frankfurt School are developing a vision, a distinct vision in which the societies of communism, um, fascism and capitalism are species, as they see it, of the same mode, the same social form of state capitalism. They see these societies as all being dominated still in various forms by commodity production and they're each manifesting a form of totalitarianism. So in sum, to summarize that kind of key, mo those key moments which lead, I think, to the uh, development of the Frankfurt School's sort of unique perspective, in, to summarize that during the late 1920s, the Institute transforms the defeat of the working class in 19, 1919 and the faltering Soviet experiment. It transforms that into the impotence, if you like, and the psychological incapacity of the working class. And it then responds to Nazism as a sign of the irrationalism and barbarism that was latent, as they saw it, in, modern, in all modern state capitalist society, whether that's in the East or the West. This then, this then, this is the mid-40s now. This is the moment of the Institute's key work, I think. Indeed, I think their defining work, which is the dialectic of enlightenment, which uh, Jim certainly advertised in cheerful terms. I mean, I think he described it as a particularly depressing book. Um, it's arguably, I think, one of the most depressing books you can possibly read. Um, it even makes Donald Duck look threatening. Now, it's worth pointing out that the Institute, by this point, is not what it was. Uh, a figure like Henrik Grossman, for instance, is marginal to the point of non-affiliation. He's headed to America, um, but he's not really playing much of a, a role in the Institute's work. The Institute itself is shrunk and it's kind of fractured. Eric Fromm, who's a very influential figure, certainly in the 50s and 60s, and is associated with the Frankfurt School, but he's fallen out with uh, Horkheimer, Adorno and Mark Huser. Uh, and they have it out a bit later in the 1950s in um, a, a debate in Dissent magazine. Uh, Walter Benjamin is dead. Uh, and the school as it is, is really now, I think, Horkheimer and Adorno and Mark Huser who is starting to strike out on his own as the so-called, well, it, it will become the so-called father of the new left. But I think it's the mid-1940s. Mid, the mid-1940s is the moment of the key definitive Frankfurt School work. And I think it's fair to say that, well, actually, it's not fair to say, they actually say it themselves, uh, Horkheimer and Adorno, so they've written this uh, at the end of the Nazi terror. The Nazi terror fuels it and forms its bleakness, I think, to a large extent. And it makes for a devastating work. It is not, I think, as the cultural Marxist narrative would have it, an attempt to destroy the West. I think it is an attempt to understand why, as Horkheimer and Adorno explicitly put it, the West is destroying itself, or as they put it, why mankind, instead of entering into a truly human condition made possible by immense technological progress, is sinking into a new kind of barbarism. 
Um, and as bleak as a question as that is, it, it does kind of make a great deal of sense at this point. This is the point of the Holocaust. And of course, it's the point of the atomic bomb. It's a, it, it, it's a period as far as they're concerned. These people have been exiled, exiled from, the, from their homeland. Um, it's, it's a point of absolute despair. So in effect, Adorno and Horkheimer argue in the, in the dialectic of enlightenment uh, that the enlightenment, which was meant to free mankind, because they want to basically want to look at what has led us to this point, what has led uh, East, West, what, what, is, what has led human society to the point whereby it should be realizing its freedom, what has led it to a point of almost absolute unfreedom. And they argue that, well, they trace it back, they trace its roots, of course, back to um, I guess the very, the very beginning of the Enlightenment itself. They argue that the mastery of nature talked up by Francis Bacon has culminated, as they put it, in the domination, coercion, and ultimately extermination of men. The dream of reason, if you like, which, uh, which animates the communist East just as much as the, uh, as the capitalist West, ends then in the nightmare of the gas chambers. That's their kind of, that's their narrative. And it's shrill, as I say, it, it's shrill. Uh, but it's work. But it's a work I think that should be taken seriously. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail because it's such a densely written book. Uh, but I think there are two key related elements underpinning the central claim of the dialectic of enlightenment. Uh, the central claim being that the that self-governance, according to reason, has turned into its opposite, which is domination by reason. Uh, the first is a distinctly Marxist inheritance. It's namely the theory of commodity fetishism and the young Marxist notion of alienation. In short, uh, Adorno and Horkheimer, they argue that under capitalism, and this is, you know, this is not a new argument, it's a familiar one, under capitalism, social relations are governed by the production and exchange of commodities. This results uh, in the means, i.e. the exchange principle, as Adorno and Horkheimer call it, this results in the means becoming ends. That is to say, the exchange of commodities, the profit that is used and so on, this all becomes the end, the aim, the point to living and working. It also becomes the end or the point of reason. But this leads to the second element of their analysis, that enlightenment reason, which is, as say, they see it, scientific and technological at its very essence, was also from its very inception always of a piece with the instrumental rationale of capitalism. It's increasingly subjected the world, or the objective world, uh, to the rationale at the level of theory of commodity production. It turns it into something to be used in the production and exchange of commodities. So they argue that the enlightenment determination to know the world, to reduce it to noble quantities, to mathematize it, expresses a desire to dominate it in the interests of incipient, if you like, commodity production. The end, if you like, of uh, enlightenment thought, as they see, is to render the world identical with the uses to which it will be put. And this determination to know the world in order to exert instrumental power over it is not limited to natural objects, of course. It extends to the people caught up in this system of production and exchange of uh, commodities. Um, this is also why they take apart Kant uh, and his claims for moral reason, uh, which, well, Kant wants to, you know, uh, Kant's categorical imperative, Kant's moral law, the, Kant's ultimate aim is, uh, I, I guess, he wants people to treat, he wants people to treat others as ends, not as means. And Adorno and Horkheimer, they see this as no more than ideology. They see this as false. They see this as an attempt to counteract or to cover up the nihilism inherent, as they see it, or the irrationalism inherent 
in purely instrumental or technological reason for which domination is the end. And this is why, interestingly, they praise the Marquis de Sade, whose philosophical fictions reduce women to objects to be sexually dominated, and why they praise Nietzsche, who reduces the moral law to no more than the law of the strongest. Because as Adorno and Horkheimer see it, both these writers have the honesty to grasp the technological instrumental rationale at the heart of enlightenment for what it is, which is destructive. And this technological rationale, which uses people in practice and subjects the, world's, uh, subject, subjects the world to its laws in theory, is totalizing also. It, its need to dominate is ever expanding. So as Adorno and Horkheimer see it, reason is seeking to subject every aspect of life to its own logic. And this leads ultimately to the administered life, to the, you know, the, to the total rule of the system directed by a managerial technocratic state and sustained famously by the culture industry, which as they see it, uh, see it has its main function as uh, affirming the status quo. As I say, it's a bleak, uh, miserable vision. Uh, but alongside it, we also see the two modes of resistance uh, that Horkheim and especially Adorno offer up, which I think become the two modes of existence, uh, resistance which characterise the Frankfurt School uh, throughout the 50s and 60s. The first lies, I think, in the act of theorising itself or unrelenting theory. So Adorno and Horkheimer, they appeal to theory, they appeal to unrelenting theory as a uh, as the space for uh, resistance. Uh, it, Adorno will uh, obviously give it a rather more sort of complex formulation in the shape of negative dialectics. Uh, and they also look, and this is really interesting, they also look to works of art and increasingly aesthetic experience. Now, superficially, this sounds like it supports the claim of advocates of cultural Marxism, that the Frankfurt School was behind the move of the left into cultural politics. Uh, this almost, lo it looks and sounds as, they, as if Adorno and Horkheimer saw culture as a tool, a way to change people's attitudes, a means to propagate the right message, a means effectively to fight a culture war. Uh, but that was an anathema, that would have been anathema to uh, Horkheimer, especially Adorno. For them, and this is key, art's importance lies precisely in its autonomy, its freedom, as they put it, to develop from its own formal law. Uh, they see art's value in its attempt, if you like, to wrest some other meaning from a world increasingly governed by instrumental reason. Uh, because in doing so, as they see it, it negates the world. It offers a glimpse of something other than it. It, it could be a weak hope or even a bleak, disturbing truth. Um, and, it's, and, and it's this which informs Adorno's last unpublished work and writes its leitmotif, which is aesthetic theory, uh, because there Adorno writes, art criticizes society just by being there. Herbert Marcuse, he ostensibly shares Adorno's views of art, and he, uh, he writes uh, in one piece, I think in the 1960s, art subjects reality to laws other than the established ones. Now, I say he ostensibly agrees with, with Adorno because Marcuse always has this tendency to want to go beyond the kind of negative theorizing of Adorno and Horkheimer. Uh, his vision of the administered life in, uh, in one-dimensional man is arguably just as bleak, if not bleaker than that in Dialectic of Enlightenment. Uh, but I think like his one-time mentor, Martin Heidegger, Mark Huser also has a tendency, if you like, to posit the alternative to this totally administered system of life as already existing, or at least near at hand. Uh, you know, he wants to give the image of utopia a name, he wants, to, he wants to name the truth, he wants to name the solution. And you can see this in the Eros and Civilization, which I think is a book from the 1950s, where he sees as the solution uh, to the repressive society 
uh, diagnosed by Freud in civilization and its discontents. He sees the solution is just the releasing of people's libidinal energies, because that's going to solve quite a lot. And he also starts to see uh, the solution, of course, in the shape of the new left. Now, the quote about the work of art, uh, which I just uh, which I just used um, from Marcuse, that is from an essay called Repressive Tolerance. Uh, it's an infamous essay from 1965, because there he argues effectively that the left in universities and ultimately beyond uh, must repress tolerance. And that means repress free speech and so on, because it allows false consciousness to flourish. The flip side to this being that Marcuse believes he knows what true consciousness is. Now, I mention this, of course, because in conclusion, I want to look at that fascinating exchange between Adorno and Marcuse in 1968-69, because by this point, I think Marcuse has fully allied himself with the new left, with students, with black power activists and so on, and even the Viet Cong, because he's, as he sees it, these figures, these agents of utopia, they sit outside uh, the labour market. They lie outside the system of the administrative of the administered life dominant in the uh, in the West. These are authentic figures. They are, they are an actual living challenge to, inor, to the inauthentic system of capitalism. They, they are therefore free of false consciousness. They possess the right view. So when students occupy, when radical students occupy Adorno's office in Frankfurt in 1968, and he calls the police to get rid of them, Marcuse not only objects to Adorno's use of the police, which is fair enough, he also supports the student's cause. Um, but Adorno can't and he won't do that. Uh, and uh, this isn't just a matter of temperament because Adorno was perhaps naturally more conservative or because he had a paunch. This was Adorno's, uh, one of Adorno's reasons given for not throwing his lot in with the students because he just wasn't physically up to it. It's also due to Adorno's own vision. He doesn't see the student radicals of the new left uh, as the answer. Far from it. I think he sees their repressive tolerance, their attempt to disrupt his lectures, to occupy uh, the Institute for Social Research. He sees it for what it is. He sees it as a product of the same uh, instrumental reason preponderant elsewhere. Uh, he sees it as part and parcel of that same will to dominate, in this case, the contents of education and reduce them to identity with their own worldview. This is why he writes, I think that the student movement in its current form is heading towards the, the, techno, the technocratization of the university that it claims it wants to prevent, indeed quite directly. And it also seems to me just as unquestionable that modes of behavior such as those I had to witness, and the, uh, the, uh, the behavior he had to witness, of course, was uh, a student bearing her breasts to him, really display something of that thoughtless violence that once belonged to fascism. Now, does this sound like a trailblazer for today's campus radicals and all the others, all the others supposedly carrying the cultural Marxist torch? I think, if anything, Adorno sounds in those last, those last, one of those few last words of his, actually, because he, he was to die a few months later. I think, if anything, Adorno sounds like a prescient critic uh, of today's culture warriors. After all, they do want to instrumentalize education and they do see art in precisely the way uh, Adorno did not as something that should convey the right message just as they call for the state to administer life in ever more intensive, reifying ways, categorizing, classifying, and protecting people according to identity, which is the very apotheosis of the systematizing, oppressive rationale Adorno waged intellectual war against. Adorno died, as I say, a few weeks after sending this letter to Marcuse. And I think with him, I think with him, much that was vital about the Frankfurt School died too. I'm going to end it there on a particularly bleak note but then again that I think it's part and parcel of talking about the uh, Frankfurt School. 
You've been listening to the lecture Critique or Conspiracy? What was the Frankfurt School? by Dr Tim Black. The talk was recorded at the BOI's Academy Online event held in April 2021 and it was part of a series exploring the theme The Use and Abuse of History. You can catch up with all the lectures right here on this Ideas Matter podcast so do make sure and subscribe through your usual channels. The Battle of Ideas charity runs a number of additional projects, including Debating Matters, the school's debating championships, and Living Freedom, an annual residential school for young people to explore ideas related to liberty and freedom. To find out more, please do visit our website, theboi.co.uk. If you can support our work with a donation, then we'd be really grateful. You can do that via the Donate button on the website. We'll be back soon with Professor Aristotle Callas giving the lecture Relic or Spectre? What was fascism? 